Lord have mercy, ladies and gentlemen, season three of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Stephen Cock Esquire, is at hand. We got a bunch of great guests lined up once again. We'll be talking some guitar. I'm sure we'll talk about food. I'm sure we'll talk about hilarity. That's just what's going to happen. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is time once again for another dish. Chewing the gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cock. Very excited for the conversation with this next gentleman, Doug Rappaport. You've seen him for about 12 years, seen him and heard him with Edgar Winter. He's just a stunning guitar player and a heck of a cool cat. So let's get ready to roll with Doug Rappaport. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yet another adventurist's episode, if you will, of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cock. Very excited today to discuss guitar fiendish practicing. Wow, that was an interesting bunch of words I just put together there with the mighty Doug Rappaport. You've seen it with Edgar Winter. I'm, you know, Doug, I got to be honest with you. I have, uh, I don't know when I first heard you play, but I, I know it was with Edgar Winter. It may have been at Summerfest. I don't know if I, I think it may have been in person, but then I thought saw a video. And then I saw another thing of you playing at the Royal Albert Hall doing some epic guitar solo. And I, my th- first thought was, who is this son of a bitch? I had to find out right away because it, I just, you know, you know how it is when you hear somebody, it's like, that mother has got it. And uh, so glad that we're able to hick up, uh, hook up, hick up, or hook up. Uh, and of course, via the inner Google, all, all things are attainable. And here we are. So how the heck are you, my friend? I'm doing well, man. It's I can't tell you what an honor it is to get to talk to you. And I'm such a huge fan. And speaking of Edgar Winter, you are one of his all-time favorite guitar players. He absolutely loves you. You're so, kidding me. No, no bullshit. He absolutely loves he thinks you're one of the greatest things that ever happened to guitar so he's a huge fan of yours oh well that's very very flattering you know i uh i'm a huge fan of his and of course johnny's as well and uh well that's that you just made my millennium thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) so where are you right now you're up in oregon i am i i uh, live in a little town uh called mcminnville oregon i'm in wine country about a hour hour 10 minutes southwest of portland so yeah now are, do you have roots in that area or just was a place you decided to relocate to my, my wife has a family here so we relocated got it so give us a little lowdown so you were you were born in the uk but raised in the us of us so give us a little kind of synopsis of your your journey if you will all right well uh my journey begins uh, in the UK. I was born in London and uh, to South African parents. Uh, my father, Dr. Rappaport, was um, in, a young intern who uh, left with his new bride uh, to London to do his residency. And that's where my brother and I were born. And shortly thereafter, we moved to the States. I was still pretty young and I grew up in Los Angeles, California. And about four or five years ago, I moved up to Oregon. That's pretty much the trajectory. 
Uh, indeed, indeed. Now, as far as guitar, how did you get exposed and 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 uh, shall we say bewitched by the power of the mighty axe? <laughs> um, you know, uh, when we first moved to California, um, I just have a memory. We had a guy come to the school and we went to a little Montessori school and a guy would come uh, once a week or whenever. But it was my absolute favorite time. He was the guitar man. And he would come in and sit us all down. And he, and I just remember him playing Puff the Magic Dragon, which I thought was just the most magical song. And I just was, uh, I think that was it. That was when I was. You know, that's so weird you should mention that because I swear to God, either that guy or a doppelganger came to my grade school. There was a guy that came in for a school assembly and he he played guitar. He played played a little thing on a nylon string guitar. And then he played an acoustic and then he put the electric on, and I just remember going, this is the coolest thing of all time. Maybe it was the same dude. Maybe. Maybe he's a rambler. He just went around in different school districts and bewitched youngins to become axe slingers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> really, that's really my earliest memory of just being, like you say, bewitched. That now, did you, have, did you have siblings that were into music that got you into it, or was it just kind of an organic thing on your own? Um, it was on my own. Um, I have, I have a younger brother. He's 18 months younger than me. We're fairly close in age. He sort of kind of did what big brother always did. So if I wanted to do music, he'd do music. And, um, but it was, it was really my own thing. I, I came up musically just, I didn't have any friends who played music. I didn't have, uh, anyone in my school who was interested in it. It was totally just my own thing and my own journey really. Yeah. And there, was there a particular kind of music early on? That, that hits you that you've maintained to this point? Or was it just like an initial kind of, hey, I kind of dig this, and then your your taste kind of matured over time? Or how would you say that rolled out? Uh, I'd say my tastes haven't matured at all, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when we moved to the States, my mom uh, brought over her Queen albums, which I don't think I don't think Queen had quite hit really big in the, in the states at this point. So I had you know um, a day at the races, night at the opera, sheer heart attack, and I was constantly harassing my mother to keep those on continual rotation to the point where she had me uh, she had a stool set up for me at the record player, and she taught me how to move the needle. And I just spent every waking moment I could listening to Queen albums, and that was probably the uh, primer. Well, Brian may have had a glorious touch. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah. Just hearing that, that, that would be uh, more than enough to, to trip one's trigger as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, you know, I ended up going to uh, alternative schools around the Los Angeles area. And one in particular was a small school and it was uh, K through 12. And so all the kids, when it was lunchtime or recess, all the kids went out at the same time. And, all the older kids, you know, this is the late 70s, uh, early 80s, and the older kids were like 18 years old, and they all had mustaches, and they all smoked cigarettes and rode motorcycles, and they'd always have a stereo or a boombox that was blasting Aerosmith, Zeppelin, Journey, uh, any of that stuff. Uh, but it was, you know, Van Halen, but it was the ACDC that really, that was the next step. That's what captured Aha. me, was the ACDC. I was like, whoa. That sound, that was it. Yeah. Well, I don't blame you there. Uh, one cannot. So, how old are you? You're 
you're you're probably a few years younger than I. When, when uh, so if you're late seventies, early eighties at that point in time. So what what are you around fifty ish? Uh, I'm uh, uh, forty eight. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So right around right around the I'm I'm the double I'm the double nickels fifty five. Yeah, man. Woo! I just wake up and say I can't believe I've lived this long. How excellent. <laughs> Oh, I was a little wild when I was a youngster, but you know, what are you going to do? I, how did you, uh, how did you have so much, um, you know, I, I, uh, I remember not too long ago, I was talking to, uh, Max Gutnick, who I think, yeah, Max, was, yeah, yeah. and he was going on about you and there was sort of this scene going on and, uh, in Wisconsin and all these rockers and shredders. And there was this one guy who was sort of this outlier guy who was crushing the finger style and, uh, you know, doing all this jazzy, all this amazing stuff that you, you got such a huge, huge palette. I mean, what was, I'm really curious about your journey. Oh, well, I'm flattered, but uh, y- you know what? It was, I, I was kind of a, a, a boomer by default because I had older siblings and I was kind of a, oops, you know, so my, my brother who was the oldest in the family uh, is 14 years older than, than I am. So oh. And so there were five girls in between. So I roomed with my brother. So I was exposed to all the music he was into. And, and you know, it was Hendrix and Cream Era Clapton and James Gang and Allman Brothers and, and that kind of stuff that, that got me. But I, I remember particularly I was bewitched by Hendrix early. So I, used to, I would read up on him. And, and I remember seeing, you know, reading about, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and Albert King. So I had a very I had interest to figuring out where this stuff all came from. So by the time I actually played guitar, like in eighth grade or summer of seventh grade, I guess we started playing. Me and my buddies, we all wanted to bone up so we could jam at our uh, eighth grade graduation party that was going to come that next year. So, um, but I, I just got bitten by the bug and, you know, it was so weird for me to play music because, you know, my mom played piano and was very good at it. She just did it by ear. Mm. Um, and, you know, my dad was a lawyer. All of my all my siblings were, you know, they went to college and were professionals. And and so the idea of being a musician horrified my not horrified, but it just it didn't seem like a viable uh, uh, job. So my, I guess part of it was, is I, I genuinely loved all these different styles, but a lot of it was just like, you know, my dad instilled in me is like, holy shit, pal, if you're going to do this, you better bone up on all these different things or else you're going to be, you know, starving. And, um, so I just took that, I took that to heart, but you know what? It's just, you, you know how it is. Like it, people's like, well, how much time do you spend playing guitar? It's like, look, I don't have hobbies, man. I don't golf. I don't, you know, I don't play tennis. I don't, you know, I don't bowl. I don't shoot guns. You know, I play guitar and I reproduce and I eat and I drink coffee and that's it, you know? So it. uh, it's like, a, you know, I get up in the morning and I come downstairs and like, yeah, I always want to learn that song. So I, I just, you know, uh, I, and all of it was kind of, you know, I, a part of it too is, you know, all the jazz guys would always look down their nose at you, right? You know, when at least the jazz guys I encountered, I've encountered a lot of great, really inspirational jazz cats who weren't that way, but a lot of guys that were, um, you know, into the uh, academia of jazz would kind of say, oh, you're one of those pentatonic guys. You're one of those blues guys. So I had a little chip on my shoulder. I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to do that so I can tell those guys to eat shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then there was a little bit of, you know, learning the country stuff. And then 
I'd see somebody doing that Merle Travis stuff. I'm like, how the hell is that possible? And I just, and so I just made sure that I could do that to the extent that I could add it to my soup. So that's kind of, that's kind of the longest short answer. <laughs> and I was, and I always wanted to have my own band and I wanted to have all those stuff. Cause you know, I don't know what, about you, but it was like, for me, it's like bands like, you know, whether it be Cream or Zeppelin or, you know, Almond Brothers or The Who or all these like iconic bands that we grew up listening to, they all had a little bit of all those things in there. You know what I mean? It's like they would do a song. It's like, well, obviously they listen to a little bit of country stuff or this one's got a little bit of jazz in it or they certainly listen to the blues stuff. And it was thoroughly okay for a band to add those different elements to their tunes and still rock. And that's what I wanted to do, I just wanted to do like a, a version of it from the next generation. Uh, but by then, it's like so many things were stifled. Like either you were a blues person, you were a jazz person, you were in the country, you know, it was this. And if you if you did too much of those other flavors, you were kind of ostracized from all of them. <laughs> yeah. And you know what I mean? So I, I just, you know, but where that really came in handy is when all these other different things came to the fore, whether it be doing, you know, instructional stuff or videos or, or, you know, clinics or whatnot. And I've always, you know, my records have always done, always paid for themselves and more, but they've certainly, you know, not been my primary source of income, but due to my ability to do all that other stuff, kind of all of those other things paid the bills so I could make whatever music I wanted to make. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who's the, who's the country guy that that you feel like you uh, uh, got the most from? Or was the biggest influence? Well, at first it was definitely uh, Albert Lee. You know, I, I heard Albert Lee playing with uh, uh, with Eric Clapton, and then I was like, "Well, who's this guy?" And then I started reading up on him. You know, and then it was uh, another English guy, actually Ray Flack. Yeah, sure. play play with Ricky Skaggs. Uh, and then I started to, you know, get into the chat stuff. I heard about this Jimmy Bryant guy. So I remember I, you know, traded or whatever. I got a cassette of like an anthology of all these different Jimmy Bryant, Speedy West things. Uh, and then I really got into Roy Buchanan. And then someone made me a cassette of the few, first two Danny Gatton records, Redneck Jazz and Unfinished Business. And that was a huge one. Uh, but, you know, Dickie Betts and, and and Steve Morris in their way were huge influences on that style of playing as well for me. So it was kind of a mishmash of all of that stuff. Yeah, I really I, I, I hear this Hendrix core in your playing. Which is, <laughs> I love it. I just, you know, all the however country you get, there's this, you know, banded gypsies type of. I can't describe it, but I definitely hear a Hendrix core in your playing. Just- no doubt. That's my main thing, you know, and I hear it in your playing as well, which I, which is probably why, you know, we, we both go, Hey, Hey, oh, Hey, you know, the, the Jimmy thing is one of, you know, I, I just, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, there's always such a weird thing with music and musicians and fans of like guitar stuff that there, there has to be this competition. You know what I mean? Like so-and-so's the best. no, this guy is the best. This is so underrated. And, uh, and you know, and you get to the point where you're like, that is all just, this is just bullshit. There's like people you like and people you don't like, and it's all a matter of taste. But I, I remember back in the day, uh, the drummer that I used to play with in high school was really a audiophile, man. He would, he was into trading for different bootlegs. I remember he was the guy that had all of the, um, you know, all, all of the Zeppelin tours, 
in in chronological order on cassette tape of bootlegs. He had them all, and then he got into he was really into yes, and he would argue about me, uh, argue to me about you know, Hendrix was nothing. Steve Morris or Steve Howe was the greatest guitar player. Of all. I'm like, well, look, I was like, look, Hendrix can't do all the stuff that Steve Howe can do, but no one can give the feels like Jimmy, you know what I mean? And and that's, and that's it. It's like, I respond to, I mean, everyone, not everyone can move their hands. There are people that have unbelievable physicality and their ability to play incredible things and so on and so forth. But there's that mysterious feel otherworldly, random emotional thing that Hendrix did and, and and Roy Buchanan did, and, and a lot of other players. That's what I get attracted to in, in playing. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, 100%. I, I'll be honest. I, I had a hard time getting into Hendrix growing up just because when I came on the scene, uh, it was it was full shred city. It was Yngwie was the reigning king. Eddie right. was the reigning king. It was just all the fastest gun. So I didn't, I didn't get Hendrix. And I realized later it was because he was sort of marketed to me in the wrong way. Um, I didn't understand at the time that he was a blues man. Yeah. You know, I, he was sort of marketed to me as this rock guitar player. And I just heard a guy was playing out of tune and I was like, yeah, no, I don't get it. And once, right. and I, I finally arrived to Hendrix through Stevie Ray Vaughan. And once I got that, once, once I got it, once I got what Hendrix was, I just became, I went through like a three year obsession. Um, so yeah. And it's just, yeah, I'm still to this day. I still can't believe it. I still can't believe how great he was. I always hear new things. Every time I hear him playing, I'm like, Oh my God, this guy is unbelievable. Uh, there's, there's a guy online, uh, has a YouTube channel and it's, I think it's Carly. Carly guitar. It's like C-A-R-Y-L-G-T-R, I believe. Anyway, he's like a, um, let me just make sure just so I know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, not that I want to get the guy in trouble if, cause it, cause he posts bootlegs. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, a lot of times what I'll do at night is I'll, you know, I'm going to sleep and I'll just find another cream or Hendrix bootleg. And some are really good. And I've, I've arrived at my favorite live Hendrix stuff. It's from early 69. So it's right around, yeah, it's just, it's right around, you know, like when you listen to the, um, you know, the Hendrix and the West version of, of Little Wing and, and, and Red House, where when he played clean, it was that glassy, clean, glorious sound. And, and the rhythm section, you know, they were at the high mark of what they were going to do. You know, you know, Noel didn't have the facility or, or the, um, retention to, to to deal with some of Jimmy's more you know uh complex you know guitar and bass unison lines or whatnot but when Mitch and Noel were on man they had a thing and that early 69 stuff is great and there are he did a tour of Europe and man when he was on it's like otherworldly absolutely absolutely I found I I know what you mean I I've seen a few clips of him in Sweden yes I think they're black and white and he starts, it might be voodoo child. Yeah. Uh, and his guitar's out of tune and he's annoyed and he's tired, you know, and he's chewing his gum and he's pissed off because guitar is completely out of tune. Right. This is a train wreck. And just within about a minute, it turns into an absolutely inspired performance. Well, you know, the thing I don't get about old Jimster is it's, it's the same thing when you see some of the stuff from, uh, from Albert Hall, he's pissed off. 
And, and but he does a version of Red House that is very much in the wheelhouse of the of the Hendrix and the West one. It's the same tone, same kind of peaks and valleys. And he's getting pissed off with himself. I'm like, calm down, Jim. You're you're nailing it. <laughs> I just it's just and he would give those guys a look every now and again. And I'm just like, oh, Jim, if you only knew how great you what you have right now is. But, you know. Those guys, those guys were dealing with stuff that, um, I, you know, it's, it was the first time really for all that stuff. If you think about it, you know, it's the first and my favorite of all that stuff is, and I've mentioned this many times, it's just the idea of you look at the stage and it's just like, you know, a fuzz face on the ground, a univibe, you know, and a wah-wah pedal or just, you know, before with the univibe, it was just the fuzz and the wah. A lot of times he's carrying it on stage. You know, and plugging it in, and the other guitars just kind of leaning up against stuff. It was like the Wild West. There was no, there were no guitar techs. There were no people. You know what I mean? It was just, and that to me is just so. That's what makes it even so much more epic. <laughs> I mean, the only, the only tech they had was the guy who had to hold the the full stacks up while Jimmy was ramming his body into them. And that was like their only job, right? From collapsing. You know, I always i i did a couple gigs with Buddy Miles. Years and years ago, he was uh, he was hanging out with some people in Racine, Wisconsin, for w- whatever reason. It was it was kind of a sordid uh, situation. But th- these guys that were kind of his financial benefactors were fans of my band. Uh, this is somewhere in the early '90s, I would imagine. And they're like, "Hey, we got Buddy in town here. He's kind of chilling out, but you know, we want to put a band around him. We thought it'd be really great if if he could do gigs with you guys." And I'm, I'm of course the biggest Hendrix fan. So I'm like, absolutely. I want to hang out with them. And it, it, it was cool for what it was. We had a couple of uh, cool gigs and so on and so forth. But the one thing I really wanted to know is like, buddy, what, what was the stage volume? Like, you know what I mean? You're sitting next to 300 watt Marshall stacks. Yeah. I mean, is it, and, and you know, it, it's like he didn't either. It didn't register. I, I kind of got the vibe from him that he really didn't get what was going on in terms of, it was just a gig to him, and Jimmy was a friend. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I'm a part of this thing that'll be known for all time. I think that kind of came later, but uh, but there was really no feedback in that regard. And I've always, you know, anytime I see or talk to anybody that says, "Oh, I saw Hendrix back in the day," I'm like, "Well, how loud was it?" You know? Yeah. And a lot of it's some people are like, "Well, if you were up close, it was really loud." But uh, you know, like my buddy Johnny A saw them. Uh, I think it was Johnny that was talking about. It. He saw them on the tour with the Monkees. Right, the the ill fated, the, the ill fated monkey store, and he said it really wasn't that loud. It was just fine because I guess you know nothing was really going through a PA other than the vocals, right? And so it was just the stage volume of these marshals. But um, that's the thing that gets me. It's like I, I'm thinking those JBL infested speaker cabinets with hundred watt Marshall heads, three of them dimed. It's like how do you even sing in front of that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> same thing the other day. I was looking at a picture of uh, poor Mitch Mitchell, and they situated him, you know, right in the middle of the stage, and right behind him, he's got he's got Noel's rig right behind him, and Jimmy's right behind him. He's got. I'm like, how did he survive that? I don't know. It's insane. Same thing with Ginger Baker. You know, the, the cream stuff. You know, I did notice in some of the pictures that th- those stacks were pretty far away from old Ginge. You know, he probably said, "Move those things away." But uh, but same thing. I mean, it's it's how did they hear themselves? But, you know, it was a glorious time of the Wild West. I, I love the story about how somebody said that when they saw Cream at Madison Square Garden, 
you know, sometime before the show, they lowered the boxing mic. That would, and that, and that was what was going throughout the, the PA system throughout Madison Square. <laughs> so they had something for the vocals, you know, on stage that was being used. And then, you know, obviously their stage gear. Then they brought down the, the boxing mic to add a little ambience. <laughs> And of course, there's that eternal question of uh, the Beatles when they played, uh, right? Play Yankee Stadium or whatever, and they just had their little, you know, thirty watt amps, and that was it. <laughs> right? It's crazy. Let's talk a little bit about the Edgar Winter situation. Now, how did you first encounter Edgar? It's obviously been a great run. It's a great band. Every all the footage I've seen just freaking rocks. And well, you know, he's extraordinarily talented cat. And so so how did that all kind of come together? If you don't mind me asking. Oh yeah, no. Um, I've been, uh, I've been with Edgar for 20 years now. And, um, what happened was he was looking for another guitar player. And at that time I was working part-time at a auction house in Beverly Hills. And my job was, you know, packing up stuff or whatever the auction house needed and writing a band. And the owner of the auction house was an aspiring singer and he wanted to do an album. He had a lot of money and he wanted to do an album. So he hired an engineer. My gig was just to take the company van and go pick up the engineer and help him haul his stuff around. And turned out this uh, um, engineer was good friends with Edgar and, and we became friends and I had a demo CD that I'd made on a four track or something. And, he loved it and he played it for his kid and his kid loved it. And um, he called Edgar and he said, he's still looking for a guitar player. And Edgar said, well, I, I think I got somebody. And he said, well, I think you should hear this guy. And um, so I got a call from Edgar one day out of the blue. This is Edgar winner. You know, I was like, oh. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So he had me go to his house and I had a little amp. All I had was one guitar and a practice amp. It's all I had at that time, you know, because, you know, you sell so much gear when you're coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely. So all I had at that time was to practice amp, and I brought it to his house, and we just jammed in his little room, and he had me copy him. He'd sing a line, I'd copy it, and, and he was like, all right, I'll take a chance. And uh, I think he was toying with the idea of getting into heavier music, and at that time, you know, I had you know, spiky hair and giant earrings. And I look like, a, I look like I belonged in a, a system of a down really. It's like what I look like. <laughs> uh, so I took a chance and that was it. I joined them. I was a lot younger than everybody else in the band. So it was a little bit of being thrown into the fire. And he made it very clear to me that, you know, I was being watched and he was recording all the shows we did. And, and uh, yeah, that's it. That's what happened. And you just kept on going. So when you first started with him, what kind of a commitment was it? Was you like you were gone 150 days out of the year, or was it like a tour here, tour there, or was it Yeah, tour here, tour there. We probably did when I first joined about I don't know, maybe 80 shows a year. And then in uh and then a couple years later, sometimes we get like the the one we saw at Albert Hall. That was like an eight-week tour. That was all just the UK, you know, from the top, you know, from Plymouth to Aberdeen and everything in between. And um, yeah, so it was usually just about 70 to 80 shows a year. Got it. And that's been pretty consistent up and through, obviously, before COVID 19. <laughs> um, 
No, it, it's declined over the years steadily. Um, you know, I don't know, markets change. Um, we had that big market crash, which really just killed us for a while. That was 2008, I think, 2009 or something like that. And, um, you know, it, it hasn't, it's not nearly like it was in the beginning, you know, where I had tons of, not tons of dates, but a fair amount. And how much stuff do you do as the Doug Rappaport band? Um, none really. Yeah, I need to do that. I'd love to do that. You know, uh, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, so I've kind of moved away from where all the players are. Uh, but I'd love to do it. I I understand. So describe for us, if you will, like gear wise, I mean, what, you know, going into a gig like Edgar's, you know, you said you're, he was probably looking into getting into the stuff that's more heavy, but yet you still got to cover all that legacy music that he had. Uh, so how did, how did you approach that? Did you think, Oh, I got to get X, Y, and Z or you're like, this is what I use and I'm just going to make that work. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I basically always had, uh, Marshall's on the back line, namely JCM 2000s is pretty much the standard, standard back line for classic rock stuff. Um, and just spend years and years and years of trial and error. And um, really, I had to learn how to get a classic rock sound. I had to learn how to really make my sound as diverse as possible. And fortunately for me, I went on tour with Rick Derringer all the time. Or okay. Yeah, yeah. These classic rock guys. And I'd always sit with Edgar and go, how am I doing, Edgar? You know, are you happy? And he'd go, yeah, you're doing great. But you know, I want you to go listen to Rick, you know. We, we do a lot of dates with Rick. He's such a well-rounded guitar player. So I would really go and, uh, you know, sidle up to Rick as much as I could. And I really paid attention to what he was doing and how he was controlling the guitar and how he was controlling uh, pedals. These, these older cats, man, they, they know their stuff, man. They understand amplifiers and they know all these neat little tricks. And, sure. And they know how to, you know, do things to the guitars and, so it was an incredible learning experience. So I just really go out with a handful of pedals and um, I know how to, I've learned to manipulate the amps and make them work for me well enough that I can pretty much cover any rock blues situation. So when you, when you use a Marshall like that, are you using the gain structures on that amp or you just kind of set it one way and use your pedals? Um, I just said it one way and use pedals uh, in the last 15 years or, or 10 years, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, I said, uh, I said a clean, slightly broken tone on the, right. the Marshall. And then I push it. My go-to these days has been the J rocket GTO, the Guthrie trap. Oh yeah. 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 Which I uh, just use that. And, uh, that's it. I mean, that's all I really need. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. And a little delay in the loop and that's about it. Interesting. I was going to ask you. So you you do use the effects of because that's that's kind of the thing. It's it's a you know I got addicted to using my you know for years I was a, I was a like super reverb vibrolux if I got a twin or a or if I you know whatever the backline is kind of like yourself I set it pretty much clean maybe just on the edge mm-hmm. and then I got a clean boost overdrive but that way I can use my uh, delay pedals and it's not the amp's not going to break them up and right. then. And then I got affiliated with the Cock Amp people, which was just coincidence that we had the same last day. Well, I, I should say it was uh, 
it was a fortuitous coincidence. And uh, just they were like, hey, we know about you. I was like, hey, I know about you. And like, wouldn't it be funny if we worked together. So, but we, they, I like the game structure on their amp. And, and prior to that, when I was doing a bunch of Fender stuff, they had this amp called the, uh, the Supersonic. And what I really liked about that is that it was a channel switching amp that worked. And you could be on the clean channel. And the clean channel was switch voicing between like a Vibrolux, which was, which was their, you know, them saying it was more glassy and black facey. And then you you hit a button and it switched it like a tweed basement on that same channel. So it'd get a little snottier, but still clean. Yeah. And and then you went to the overdrive channel and it was it was pretty crunchy. You know, it was, it was kind of a Marshall-y type of thing. And then I got used to using that. And then I ditched the pedals because, of course, I don't want to deal with the effects loop and all that other kind of shit. So... Then years later, I do the caulk amplifier thing. Again, I'm using gain on the amp, but then I make sure the amp has everything on it. You know, it's got uh, harmonic vibrato. So if I ever want kind of like a pseudo univibe or Leslie-ish sound, it's on the amp. You know, it does it does all this different stuff. But then every now and again, I'm like, yeah, I'd like to have a little bit of delay. And then I got to use the effects, all that kind of shit. So, you know, I did this guitar camp last summer. Actually, you know, um, and Robin Ford was down there. And I've known Robin for a bit. And, and he was actually in town here doing a blues festival and he got a hold of me and said, Hey, why don't you come out and sit in? I'm like, great. So he had his dumble, right? So he's got his dumble all set up and he's got a little pedal board. And after we got done playing, I was like, so how often are you using the gain on that amp? He's like, Oh, I don't use the gain at all anymore. I just set it clean and use pedals. Mm-hmm. So there, there just seems to be, you know, the vast majority of people, especially people who are traveling around, they're just setting the amp as it is and then using pedals to kind of do all the rest of the business yeah well pedals are so great now i mean yeah so good now you can have a pre like preamps in a box right they're great there are tons of them and they're great i i if i do get an amp that doesn't have all you have to do if you get an amp that doesn't have an fx loop and you want to use delay you just have to dial it clean right right then you can use your delay at the end of the chain there right but the, uh, for me, an effects loop is ideal. It's just because then I can get a little bit of more dirt into that preamp, the clean. Right, 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 right. Well, I see you're wearing a Friedman shirt. I, I love me some Friedman amps, but that that's an amp that you turn it up and let the good times roll. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. yeah the Friedman amps. I mean, there's just you just can't do much better than a Friedman amp. They're amazing. Absolutely. A small. I had a I had a small box fifty for a for a while, and oh, then. Yeah. You know, and then the Wildwood videos, that's what we were using for the overdrive. We'd go between a we'd go between that and a uh a uh, a Tone King Imperial for the cleans. And that was a cool little setup. But he uh, he makes great stuff. Oh yeah. I my uh my phone was blowing up. They're like, Greg is using a small box, go check it out. I mean, it was like that that was blowing. When you were playing that small box, it was like the guitar world was a hair on fire. It was like, oh my god. Ah, <laughs> yeah, you crazy! Were, you were killing on that thing, man. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, that's a great app. That small box, that channel one, something else. Man. Yeah, it's glorious. Well, you know, it's it's like it was the only app that did uh, the plexi thing, but at any volume, it seems yes. to me. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I tried a uh, years and years and years and years ago. Uh, at Westwood Music in Westwood, uh, California, in Los Angeles, the home of UCLA, uh, they had a little store there, and they were carrying the cock amps. Yeah, yeah. And I actually bought a twin twin tone. I think it was yeah, called. Tw- twin tone exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
because it was I was absolutely blown away by that amp. I, it was like the greatest amp, and I bought it. Unfortunately, it didn't work out because there were some issues with it, and I was bringing it back, and they were like, "Oh, we have to send it back to Holland," or I don't remember where they're from, Holland or something. Yeah, it's Holland, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and they were like, "You know what? You want a refund because this is just going to be a huge problem." I was like, "Yeah, just let's just." Let's just give me a refund, and because they got to send it back to Holland, it was a whole. Ah, oh, damn it! Man, Man. What, an what an amp! Yeah, I love them. And so when I tried that amp for the first time, I I dug it because I got a twin tone as well, and um, and they're like, well, if we did anything different, what would we do? And I said, well, I really like both channels because they're what I love so much about their clean channel is it does. You know, it, it does that kind of warm, compressy thing, but it doesn't get spiky on the top and it doesn't fart out on the bottom. And that's what I love so much about the clean tone. But I was like, if there's just a way that we could add a little bit of paste to that clean tone if we wanted to. So then they suggested this OTS circuit, which was you know like speaking Swahili to me, but it was uh, <laughs> they described it as it was a half watt power amp tube that you could add to either channel. So it's like adding a tube driver to either channel. And so there's like a, there's a control on the top, there's controls on the front, there's controls on the top, and, one, and the, to the far left, there's a volume and a gain, and that's that OTS circuit. So I can add that to the clean sound, and it sounds like a, you know, like a blackface amp cranked, you know? And then if, if I go to the lead channel, you know, they had lead channel, and then the lead, lead boost on top of that same channel, but then you can add the OTS on top of that as well, which then it sounds like a fuzz. So it did all these different things. And then I just wanted to tweak the reverb a little bit. So we did like the three control reverb and then I, and then I wanted harmonic vibrato. And so that's what they all did. So my amp's like a souped up twin tone. I see. And, with, and with, also, with two tens. You also went with a, um, EL 34 power tubes, didn't you? And you're saying that's, th that's correct. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Why did you choose those as opposed to the, uh, well, I, I think that's just, that was, you know, Dolph Koch, bless him. Uh, that's his, his, uh, his template. That's what he likes to use. He does everything with EL, either 34s or 84s. Ah, okay. And, uh, and I thought, well, I like him in the twin tone. Let's try it. You know, let's try it with the, uh, this other amp. So away, away we went. <laughs> uh, and it's been good. You know, you know how it is, man, you get a new amp and you, and it's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And then inevitably, at some point, you play it next to whatever you were using previously, and you're like, eh, maybe I'll go back to that. But this this has been one of those things where this amp is really, I mean, it, it does everything I need it to do. And, I, and lately, I've started to use pedals with it, so I kind of do some pedal gain and then use the delay with that, and then I just do just the amp all by itself as well and kind of go back and forth. So I've really got kind of a, a nice little, little palette of, to of tones to choose from. But for the longest time, I would just go out and, you know, it'd be a chord, the guitar, the amp, and then the amp's foot switch. And we were done. So, and as especially going out on the road, man, with the, with the band, it was like prior to COVID, we had just started really touring in the States over Europe. We've been doing stuff for years and I've got a, you know, Klaus, my tour manager over there, you know, it's great to have a guy, but in the States, we didn't have a guy. So I, I was the guy. So we like me, my son on drums and the organ player, you, know, you show up to the gig and then it's like, uh, I got to advance the gig. I got to set up all the merch. I got to, you know, do the sound check where we eating, where we stand over at the merch table during the opening act, do the gig, go back to the merch table afterwards, sign up everything, tear down all the shit. And then you're like, oh, now I got to tear down my gear. 
Good thing it's only good thing it's only one chord and the foot switch to the amp, right? So the so the first gig after COVID, you know, when we we're doing all these different live streams from the house here, I brought out the pedal board. Isn't that fun to have a couple more, you know, Univive here or you know this that maybe Octavia whatever. And so I'd be kind of fun to bring that out to the gig. So the first gig after COVID, I bring all the shit out, and we had like a three day run. First day, I bring everything out. Same scenario. I'm selling merch, doing this, that, and the next thing. I come and I look at that freaking pedal board, some of which is going through the effects loop, some of which is not. And I was like, fuck all of that. <laughs> the next the next day, it was guitar, chord, amp, foot switch, dunzo. So it never ends. <laughs> I don't feel like I, I mean, I'm, I, I cling to my pedals, man. I cling to my delays. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I have much respect for you straight in guys, man. That's, you know, that's amazing. Well, again, and it's not, it's not like a, a hard guy thing. It's a, it's a lazy guy thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. But I have been, you know, I did bring out this last tour that we did, you know, this last week. It was the first time we'd done more than like three dates together on the road since before COVID. And I did bring out the pedal board and it was fun having just a couple extra little options, a couple little, I got this jam. Are you familiar with the, the Greek pedals, jam pedals, J A M? Mm, no, I don't think you so. should check them out. They're really, they're great pedals. And I met, I, I met Giannis years ago, um, actually in Scandinavia. He reached out to me, I think through MySpace. That's how long ago it was. And, and uh, I checked out his pedals and I just really dug them. And plus they're, they're, every pedal is like a piece of art. They're just cool the way that what they do with how they package them and so on and so forth. But he does very good, you know, minor tweaks and just cool little ergonomic updates of like classic pedals. So he does an analog delay called the Delay Llama. And his um, his his Univibe is called the Retrovibe, and it's great. But he does this chorus, chorus pedal, which I don't really like chorus all that much, but he does this thing called the waterfall. It's got a couple little mini toggles, and you can get it to set itself where it's, it's, it's this real mild chorus, but it's got just a little vibrato that comes in every now and again. It's like, it's kind of like Bill Frizzell in a box. And that, that's been kind of cool. So they made me this multi-effect, and it looks like a little tweed amp, but it's about this big. And they just threw a bunch of their different stuff in there. So I got their their compressor. I don't use a ton of compression, but it's it's nice to have on there every now and again. It's got like a um, um, kind of the uh, big muff style fuzz. I got that on there. But I got a Univibe, that chorus, a phaser, and then the analog delay all in this one box. And it's just kind of fun to have every now and again if I want to mess around with any of those little flavors. And then I my favorite kind of Leslie simulator that I've been using is the neo instruments ventilator that thing sounds good and i had i i didn't really use it all that much once i got the organ player in the band because i got an organ player with a real leslie you know uh but then i've been messing around with that thing again and it's kind of fun to use it with the leslie because then it's like leslie overload which there really can never be a leslie overload <laughs> <laughs> so when you go on the road uh how do you do you have all that organ stuff on the back line for you the leslie and everything uh, well it's kind of a little bit of both. It, it's been a real pain in the ass. So a few years, you know, when we first got this band together, um, and it was like an instantaneous thing. My son knew this organ player and he would kept on telling me about and the, the organ player. Toby, his name is, he's, he's from Minneapolis and that's good. Five hours away from here. 
And my son, you know, went to school up in Minneapolis. He's got a lot of musician friends up there. So he'd go up there and do gigs. He'd come home. It's like, got to hear this organ player. Long story short, the organ player comes down here to buy a Leslie from somebody in town. We do a spontaneous jam at a studio. We end up releasing, you know, three of those tracks as a result. You know, and then we recorded more like two weeks later. And we just hit the ground running because there was just the way the guy plays bass. It's just he'd be a great bass player if he wasn't an organ player. But then he's a great organ player, you know. So it just was this, this thing was immediate, but immediately I thought to myself, well, if I go to Europe, I'm going to need to have some backline, you know, dialed in. So uh, that's the reason why I reached out to Mascot and we ended up getting the record deal with them. But pr primarily I did it is because I needed to have some kind of, you know, well, I needed an agent in the UK, which I didn't have at that point, And I needed help with the backline. And I'm just going to say right now that they helped with none of those things, but I got them all taken care of. <laughs> Wow. But, but it was it was hard, you know, so I, I got him I got him affiliated with um, Hammond, you know, like right away. It was I was doing a thing down at Sweetwater in. Um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, there was down there for doing a fishman thing. I was performing and this guy's sitting at a Hammond, you know, at the Hammond booth. And I go over there. And he's like, hey, Greg, I'm like, oh, hi, I don't think I know. He's oh, I'm a big fan. I actually play guitar, too. I'm like, I'm like, we're in, right? So I start talking to him, like, I got this new project with this organ player, and we're going to need help logistically, and so on and so forth. And so I thought I had all the, the ducks lined, but it's, but it's still, it, we had to do everything on our own to make sure that we would have a keyboard everywhere. And um, so we started to just make sure that we would drive everywhere. So we had a West Coast run. We ended up driving all of our shit out there because to rent a B3 in LA was like pestilentially expensive. And so it made more sense for us to find gigs out to LA, drive all of our crap out there and uh, at least have all of our stuff. <clears throat> so it's been a learning process. So obviously we'd like to fight. I told the agent, I go, why don't you try to find as many places in his major, ma in major markets that have a B3 in their club and we'll go and do those places as opposed to hauling all of our crap but um it's an excellent question doug and the and the answer is it's been a freaking nightmare but it's worth it yeah it, it's worth it in the end because that it just sounds so good so at one point check this out so i got a honda odyssey right and and toby does too i always refer to it as the cadillac of minivans because you know when you first have kids it's like you got to get a minivan well there's either the toyota sienna or the granddaddy of them all the freaking Honda Odyssey. So I felt like I'd really arrived in true suburban form when I bought my first Odyssey. But we took one of the seats out, put the other seats on the back, and we got a uh, a, a chopped B, uh, the Leslie. Actually, I take that back. I think he brought his his Hammond SKX. So it's the kind of the digital console, two count, two two level organ console thing, a, a Leslie. Two Vibrolux amps, um, my son's drum kit, merch, us, and all of our luggage, and a Honda Odyssey. And we we drove all the way down to Texas, down to Austin, played played dates, and then drove all the way back to Wisconsin. So so we've done it in an Odyssey. And then we did the same thing. We went to California, uh, drove all the way out there. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those. It's one of those things. You know, it, it was interesting. It's like after. When COVID hit, you know, you're like, oh, now we're, we just started to get our traction going, doing all that stuff. But the more time I stayed at home and the more time I was doing 
uh, live streams and all these other aspects of, of being a musician from your house were, were working out. And I was like, well, I kind of miss playing in front of people, no doubt, but I, I, I get to play in my house. But the idea of going back on the road was like wigging me out because I, it started to come back to like what I would have to do just to get out the door and, and get all those things going. And I was reminded of that last week. And after the first date, I was like, I don't care how much it costs. I'm getting a dude to drive, to, to, to deal with hotels, to sell merch, because I, I can't do it anymore. But I, and I'm not whining, folks. You know, doggone it. It's one of those things where it's just like you reach a certain point and it's like, you know, in order to play worth a shit and to keep in good spirits and have the energy and all that other kind of stuff, you can't wear all the hats. You just can't do it. Or you can, but, you know, I did give up drinking many years ago, so my crutches are limited. <laughs> Fantastic, man. Wow. Oh, Lord have mercy. But what are you going to do? We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So what kind of stuff you been doing up there in Oregon? Um, I've been doing some recording. I've been working on doing my own uh, album, which is long overdue. I put out an album back, I think the last time I released an album was 2008. And so I'm well overdue and people have been nagging me nonstop to do something. And I'm just, um, you know, it's hard to write for myself. You know, if someone sends me an amp and says, you know, demo this amp, I can write a piece of music and, you know, it's decent and it sounds good and I can record. It's like for other people, no problem. But if I got to write for myself, I just, you know, I'm not so prolific all of a sudden. So, you know, just trying to write, get into the headspace where I go, I'm just going to create something and put it down and I'm not going to overthink it. And I'm just, gonna, you know, I'm going to, if it sounds good, I'm going to leave it. Even if it's got, if I'm bending something a little sharp or whatever, I'm just going to leave it. Right. I'm not going to trip. And, um, so that's what I've been doing and trying to get my, my gear demo thing moving again, post COVID and hopefully getting back out on the road. Edgar's releasing a new album. Um, I think, uh, April he's releasing songs bit by bit. He just released uh, mean town blues as a single with Joe. Bonamassa. Right. And, um, yeah, so he'll be releasing that album and in the summer we'll probably get going with that. Wicked. But, so did did you ever have an opportunity to hang out with Johnny at all through Edgar? I did. I did. We did a lot of we did a lot of stuff with Johnny and I, I got to hang out with him. Um God, what an amazing guy, man. You know, I, he was always in my consciousness as as all of us as guitar players, and he was just sort of seen this to be this hellion, this sort of rebel, wild guy. And man, the Winter Brothers. They're, they're old Texas, you know what I mean? So Johnny was a gracious, a very gracious Southern gentleman, first and foremost. So that was always surprising. Uh, but yeah, I got to hang with him a little bit. And he was always very good to me. Very cool guy. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sure he had some, some wild tales. Yeah. Yeah. He did have some wild tales. 
unfortunately, when I really got to really hang out with him, he wasn't quite in the in the best of health. And I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of the guys that I think I got into as a result of once I got into the original, you know, uh, Holy Trinity. Uh, well, I shouldn't say Holy Trinity, but, you know, you got into Hendrix. You got into Clapton. And then, it was, of course, it was Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. And then you'd start hearing the peripheral names of that era. You know what I mean? And then it was like, you know, Johnny Winter and Mike Bloomfield and Peter Green and, you know, and these types of guys. And I, I guess I got into Johnny. Um, my There was a um, a record my brother had, and it was called uh, The Great Rock Festivals of the 70s. And it was a compilation of the Isle of Wight, uh, select things from the Isle of Wight, and then from the Atlanta Pop Festival. And then Johnny did a, a version of Mean Mistreater on there that was incendiary. And and then my guitar teacher at the time uh, was a Johnny Winter fan, and he told me, you got to go get the Johnny Winter and live record. Yes. And I got those two and just started burning the midnight oil. But then I really got into, uh, I think arguably my favorite Johnny Winter stuff is with is the Muddy are, are the Muddy Water records is our sorry uh, the three Muddy Waters records that he was on and then the record that he did under his own name with the Muddy Band that uh, uh, still got the blues I think um, I'm trying to remember what that's called uh, but it's got uh, tired of trying on it it's, anyway it's just playing on theirs because he did mostly clean that clean neck pickup on that firebird man that sounded so good and then he, of course he did a bunch of the of the national slide stuff on there as well but uh, and then I kind of went backwards from there in that first Johnny Winter solo record where it's just his face on the front's one of my all-time faves and uh, and then of course the alligator records he started doing in the 80s were really good yeah oh he's and- yeah, I, I you know I saw a show with uh, Rick Derringer and and Johnny. I've I've seen Johnny. Uh, I can't remember how many times, but this particular time, and this is probably late nineties, maybe. And and Johnny was magnificent, but Rick Derringer blew my mind. You know, I knew he was great, but when when he came out and started playing, I was like, this son of a bitch has continued to improve. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ricky's no bullshit, man. That, that guy is, that guy is something else. Edgar used to say, man, you you just need to listen to Rick because that, that guy is just well rounded, and, and that's what he was. He could just do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a fan, that was a fantastic show, and uh, yeah, it's a. Uh... It's crazy. These guys, you know, they, uh, that generation of, of players, man, they just, you know, I guess, I don't know. I don't want to sound like, oh, kids these days. There's magnificent musicians these days and all kinds of different sources of inspiration and so on and so forth. Uh, but there was something about that, that connection to the source that those guys all had of the original, you know, blues and rockabilly and all that kind of stuff that, uh, was looming as a pole. You know what I mean? It just seemed to have, a little bit more gravitas to it yeah. Uh, than a lot of the, uh, you know, not the, as I said, there's still great music out here today. And certainly there's, there's so many more outlets for, for learning stuff these days than there ever were when we were younger. You know, we had, I always make the joke that we had, we had vinyl and we had beer. And then when we got a little bit older. We had the VHS tapes, you know, of, of a Starlix or whatever. Like, Oh man, it's a Danny Gatton one. Or there's a, 
you know, there's a, who's a Scotty Anderson guy. This guy's out of his mind, you know, and you'd get those things and, and check them out. Um, and those, but they didn't have like tab with them or anything. So they would slow stuff down, but you, but still it was, it was the next level of obviously not sitting in front of a vinyl thing where you're just kind of like, cause I never would slow down records back in the day. A lot of people, you know, well, Oh, I slowed down my record. I, I don't even, what are you slowing them down to 16? It doesn't work. So I never slowed down the records. I just turned them into like, you know, scratch riddled, looked like some like wild beast was feasting on it. And, and, uh, and, and that's what I learned. But nowadays, man, it's like you've got there's such a wealth of information. And I've, I've heard some people, you know, kind of poo poo that, that there's just so much stuff that it's hard for people to concentrate on what's the valid stuff to actually learn and and go forward. on. But, you know, I, I for me, I love it just because, you know, remember how it'd be back in the day where you'd read up on someone in Guitar Player magazine like you just discover somebody new and and like even like when I got into Albert Lee and you start reading, he's like, he's mentioning, you know, uh, uh, Roy Nichols and uh, uh, Jimmy Bryant and James Burton and all these different dudes. You're like, man, well, where am I going to find these records? You know, nowadays you read any of those names, you just go over to YouTube or, you know, just click it in. And there's either going to be at least someone uploading the, the audio. If not, there'll be actual video footage of these playing. And then a, a half a dozen Jamokes sitting there, you know, showing you their way of playing it. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, you have all these different, but you know, you still got to put the time in and you got to have the feel right and all that other kind of stuff. But I, I do, I am part of that school. I do, I do think it's a double edged sword. Um, I don't know if that's the right term, but I think it's amazing that people have such uh, immediate access to how to do this stuff. And I see that guitar playing has become very, uh, it can get very gymnastic, you know. I mean, they're, they're doing these incredible feats of dexterity and physicality on their guitars, and it's mind-blowing. And it's really just, you have millions of videos of people telling you where to put your fingers. And I think that's great, and it's advanced tech, uh, the technical aspect of guitar playing quite a bit. Right. However, I think the way that uh, you and I, I think we're, kind of the last of that generation that had to really sweat out the hours you know like you say we're like spinning that record over and over again and then all of a sudden it's you know seven hours have gone by and like whoa whoa what happened you know right and um but like when i hear you play i've left a few comments like when you play a hendrix thing when you start to play hendrix it's like it just destroys me inside in a good way because you got the essence, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, lots of people can play a uh, little wing, but they're missing that essence. And that essence only comes from slogging it out for hours and hours and hours and, and just having it go through you and in you and to become a part of your DNA, you know? Right, it's, right. I hear what you're saying. It's taking that away. It's taking away that, that, uh, absorption that immersion that we had when we came up right right don't you think i uh, agree with you yeah I, absolutely i mean that's those are very good points i mean it's well just i i i don't think that um and again i don't want to you know uh, well we we agree on these different points but I, it's, it's always an interesting thing to walk the line oh it's just not old guys poo-pooing the thing, but it is different. It's a, di I think the value of music is different. You know what I mean? For, for one thing, you know, there's countless different examples, but you know, I saw this, um, this footage 
of uh, Zeppelin playing at uh, the Oakland. I think it was like their last gigs in the States ever at the 1977 Oakland Coliseum or something like that. And it was just like footage from the crowd, a little documentary. And they showed all of these people. It's the middle of the day. There's like 70,000 people there or whatever. And no one's got a cell phone, you know, and no one's going like this. No, you know, they're just there to experience music in the moment. And, and, and I've been at shows where, you know, when I, when I go out and see somebody play, you know, I, I put the phone down. I mean, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I'll be like, Oh, it'd be kind of fun to get a little footage, but you know, I'm not completely, you know, putting the phone down the whole time. But for the most time I'm trying to be present, but even like younger musicians that I know if they're in the crowd, they're, they're on their phones, man. They, it's so hard to get people to relish the power of music in the moment to the extent that we did. And that's the whole reason why we knew against all odds that we were going to do this, this, this living because it, it was beyond, you know, there was something magical about music that made you just go, yeah, I don't care what the risks are. This is for me. <laughs> well, you know, uh, not to name drop, but I'm gonna, uh, yeah, get it. Uh, st- uh, uh, talking to, uh, uh, Mr. Steve Lukather. Uh, yeah. He said, um, and I thought it was a really poignant thing, is that music has become background sounds for people's lives. So, you know, and I think that's pretty profound. It's not like, you know, it's just music is now something to have going on while you're doing other shit. Right. You know, that's that's true. Well, even think about this. I mean, when I was a kid, and I'm sure it's the same when you were a kid, you know, you'd go to a, a wedding and part of the fun thing about a wedding is there's going to be a band there and you would see these grizzled old yes. guys hauling in anything from accordions to guitars to, is that a, what, what has he got? And, and is it going to be loud? Is it going to be definite? What is that? You know, is this like this cultural thing that was a part of that whole function and you'd hear anything from, you know, polkas to, you know, I left my heart in San Francisco and then, you know, Johnny be good or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and it was just like this thing, but starting from, I mean, I had a band at my wedding, but all of my brother's kids, every one of them had a DJ, you know, and that still to this day, it's, and it was, well, it's cheaper to get a DJ. Well, not anymore. Freaking DJs are more <laughs> are expensive as, or if not more so than bands. And, and it's, it's one of those things where it's been, as you said, the importance, or as you were saying, what Steve said, the importance of music is not what it was. And, um, and you know, that's why I always say, you know, people are like, well, uh, I always say I'm so, as much as I'll snarkily comment about this, that, and the next thing, I'm actually just so gratified and grateful I can make any kind of living and that I have anything going on to the point where I can play my guitar and get paid for it because. I have no idea what other people are listening to. I, I have no idea. You know, I don't know how they're processing music. You know, I've made jokes. And of course, you re- you talk to some older curmudgeon, like people music, listen to music with their eyes. And I'm like, no, they don't. They listen with their groins is what I, <laughs> <is> what I, <laughs> is what, but I, I, but my real thing is I have no idea how they're processing the music. I'm just grateful that enough people seem to give a shit so that I can actually make a living playing with the stuff I want because you know, it's almost like even above that, it's you're almost better off. And of course, this is easy for me to say, but you're almost better not off not having 
you know, this status of when you're on your own auspices, you're filling these, you know, arenas with 10, 20,000 people, because then you might actually get in your thought that, oh, it is my great music. But it's, it's like, no, it's, it's probably because it's been marketed in a way that registers with people's groins. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but that's like the worst thing that can happen. I used to say for years, the worst thing that can happen to a musician is too much success. Because then you'll actually think it's about the things you love when it really isn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, and that's not to say that there aren't brilliant musicians with unbelievably timeless songs that haven't been extremely successful. But I'd like to say that that's more of a coincidence. <laughs> Now that sounds like some old jaded boomer shit right there. <laughs> That's great. But that being said, I'm just grateful to have what I got by Jiminy Jangle Jingle. You know, it's I remember years ago, I'm and it's like I was trying so hard to get a record deal with my first iteration of my band. You know, I had a drummer that could sing great. The bass player sang it up. I had my own vocal thing that we do. We do three-part harmonies. And um and we thought we had a really cool thing. It was kind of like a kind of like a little feet type of thing. It was definitely blue. It was basically the same thing I'm doing now, but you know, it's that's always been kind of my thing. It was like a little funk, a little blues. It's got a lot of blues, that Hendrix thing, a little bit, a little bit of jazz in there, a little bit of that chicken picking. And but they were tunes. They were tunes that were accessible and so on and so forth. But you know, one tune might be a little funky, one tune might be a little more bluesy. This one's got kind of a country aspect in it. This one's kind of a bar. So it couldn't be strictly put in uh, um, a particular genre thing. We, we didn't really give a shit. We thought, well, just on the auspices of the music alone and the fact that we we're very prolific, we should be able to get something going. Mm. And so I tried getting all these different, you know, people to get interested in what we were doing. And I remember I had this one buddy of mine who knew somebody at a big record label and He's like, hey, you know, he was a pretty well-known musician, and he got a hold of somebody at this label. And said, hey, I got this is band in Wisconsin. They put out their own records. They got this out the next thing, and, and all the guy, the only guy's question was, how old are they and what do they look like? Yeah. And then I was like, you know, <laughs> and at the time, it's like we were not. A, I mean, we didn't give a shit what we looked like because you know what? It was right around the time. This is the early '90s, and the Allman Brothers had just reformed, and to to me, they were the coolest dudes in, in the world. Uh, and it's like Warren Haynes, those guys, it, Alan Woody and fucking Greg Allman and Dickie Betts. It's like, sometimes they would wear something, but most of the time it was like a t-shirt and like cowboy boots and long hair and a ponytail. They certainly didn't look like they were working out. I think they all shared the same personal trainer who was Ronald McDonald. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they didn't give a shit. And so that was kind of my motto. So I, I, I really didn't uh, worry about it, but it's like, yeah, you know, and then I see other people are like, no, you know, it's probably a good idea to look like some kind of a Greek Adonis that can't hurt, you know, it's like, well, I have no interest in any of that kind of activity, but um, what are you going to do, Doug? What are we going to do? It's just well, kind of a, the internet's been a blessing in that regard for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't have to. Absolutely. You can bypass all the. You can bypass the marketing department, right? Exactly correct. Exactly correct. It's been one of those things where, you know, people can enjoy, you know, without the middle the middle person trying to frame stuff. It's just it is what it is, and it's online. And if you want to seek it out, away you go, and and that's that. It's been a. I've always said, you know, 
like all the different things I did over the years from, you know, doing the Fender thing to writing for guitar magazines, having different record deals with this person, that person, whatnot else, all, all great opportunities, but they all paled in comparison to the Wildwood thing. As soon as I started the Wildwood thing, it's like it opened up doors and people were seeing me play for like for the first time. And it was like something I would have never dreamed up. You know, it was like a, a random you know, a thing where the, like, the Fender guy got a hold of me from Colorado. He's like, remember that store in Colorado you did a clinic at? And I was like, oh, yeah, Steve, that was great. He's like, well, he has this idea about doing videos. And then I went out there and did one day, and they asked me to come back every month. And I've been doing that for 10 years, <laughs> 10 years plus. Yeah. So fantastic. Okay. Away we go. Fantastic. I got a burning question I got to ask you. Yes, sir. Uh, and- because I'm a humbucker guy and I'm so inspired by single coil sounds. And I just, you know, I, I, I get disappointed with, with single coil performance and I hold you up as the best example of how to get great sounds out of single coils. And what I love about single coil players like yourself, um, I put Josh Smith in this category as well. And uh, you know, Hendrix as well as how you guys can make a strat not sound like a strat. When I play a strat, it's like, oh, there's the bridge pickup and oh, next position. Oh, there's the sweet home Alabama sound. You know, it <laughs> always just sounds like a strat. But somehow you and just a tiny handful of other strat players get this other other sound. You seem to be able to really get the most out of this instrument more than the sum of its parts. What are, you know, I've talked to about this, you know, with tons of guitar players, like, how does, how does Greg do that? And they're like, oh, you should ask him. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I should ask him. And anyway, here you are. Uh, well, well, I'm <laughs> flattered. First of all, <laughs> beyond word, you know, it's a weird thing. I, um, you know, my, my uh, single coil, journey really began with a, a telecaster and it and, but i always wanted to play a strat but it was but the telly was the first fender guitar that was uh that was available to me so i got that i mean i had a i had a fender lead one i guess that was my first but that had a humbucker in back right so uh about fi- age 15 or so the guitar teacher i was taking lessons from um had a, te- a 68 telly he was selling and i just wanted the neck sound neck pickup sound on a fender guitar that's all i wanted really i didn't really care about anything else so i got that guitar and that just i just really bonded with the sound of the telly the, the neck pickup and then i figured out yeah this bridge pickup has this thing it's almost like there's like onboard channel switching you know i can you know do kind of my mellower bluesier things and then, and then when i go for the jugular i'll go to the bridge pickup and then this middle position i can sometimes do my chunkier like crunch chords with that so i in my mind i had like these visual kind of things that i would lend to each different position of the of the guitar and then because that was my only instrument, I would I would make it be a Strat. I would make it be a Les Paul. I would do whatever I could uh, with you know with my hands and with the amp I had at the time to just kind of get the most out of it. And so to the point where when I got the Strat, I didn't really I didn't really like it as much because the neck pickup was a little harder and more unforgiving than the pickup on the on on a. Um, on a, on a Telecaster. So fa- fast forward years later, when I've absolutely forced myself to play a Strat, 
Um, you know, I, I and I can remember this, the guitar specifically. It was a um, it was a reissue Mary Kay '63 Strat um, with a rosewood fingerboard, and and I played that guitar through a Jim Kelly amp, uh, which had a um, it had a power silk for the the lead channel. And that sound, it was really kind of what got me realizing how to get a good sound out of a Strat. Um, and it was it was primarily one of those things where, you know, I, I never I didn't really use any pedals at that time. I maybe would use a delay every now and again, but it just kind of straight into the amp. And I'd mess around a little bit with the pickup heights to to make sure I would have. You know, kind of that thing where if I went to the bridge pickup, it was louder than the neck. So I heard, well, Stevie Ray would bury, bury his neck pickup and then gradually bring up the middle pickup and then have the back pickup all the way, you know, as up, you know, and so I started messing around with stuff like that per se. Um, but you know, I always kept the, the EQ on the amp pretty, pretty flat and, and, uh, like still to this day, it's like when I, when I switch from, you know, a Strat to a Les Paul to whatever, I, I have the EQ all at 12 o'clock in the presence at 12 o'clock. And, um, and then I just, and, and that's kind of one of the great things about that amp is that's the way it rolls. But that's what I did on the Wildwood videos as well. I, I maybe would tweak a, a little bit of the high end and back off on certain things before I went from humbuckers to single coils on that. But um, other than that, it's, that, that's really about it. I mean, you know, back in the day when I would use like a, uh, well, I would use my Gristle King quite a bit. Like the other day, I, I did a video with um, uh, my '74 Strat with with a um, with my Gristle King pedal with a clean boost and a little bit of overdrive. I guess I never really used all that much gain either. It's like I would always hear people come up going, you know, your sound has some sustain and stuff, but it doesn't really sound like you use that much gain. And I guess I never really did. You know, it was always. Uh, so you heard more of the nuances of those different pickup selections. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? That wasn't clouded as much by, by, uh, by too much gain. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. I don't know, but I, I, I'm flattered that you hold my single coil sounds in that regard, but it's, that, that's kind of it. I mean, I was always frustrated with the strat to be honest with you, because, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was always one of those things where like a telly, you got three sounds and they're all great, you know? And, um, and you and they all cut, you know. As soon as I put the strat on, I can immediately hear that it doesn't have as much definition in any one of those pickup spots per se. And so it always takes a little bit for my ear to adjust. But I, I will say that when I started using the the Fishman, when I helped voice the Fishman pickups for, uh, I had my own signature sets. But prior to that, I worked with them on the strat set. The coolest coolest thing I liked about those pickups and still do is that they make it so every one of the positions of the five-way toggle switch sound like the epitome of what you want those pickup selections to sound like. And then it was fun for me to play a Strat again. Because when I'm doing the Wildwood videos, what I'm always astounded by, it's like from Strat to Strat, uh, how different they are. You know what I mean? It's how different they are from, oh man, this one, the single pickup sounds sound great, but the 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 two and the four sound kind of muddy. And then you'll play another one where it's like, man, the two and the four really have the sparkle. You know, what I mean? it's, it's really a, it's a weird thing. It's, it, which, which is really cool. If you think about it, that there's, 
you know, you really, it's still about the search and finding the right one and all that other kind of stuff. But what I found with the, with the Fishman pickups that every strat I put those pickups in, I could count on all five positions of the toggle switch delivering what I expected from that situation. Um, and then out of the blue, I buy this 74 strat, which was you know, just kind of on a lark this past summer. You know, I was, and I was a huge Hendrix fan, as we've discussed, and, you know, and uh, Richie Blackmore. So the idea of a big headstock strat kind of intrigued me. Yes. And uh, I was in a store locally here, and I went in there, and I saw this sunburst. Here it is right here, this, this sunburst yeah. strat. And I, I picked it up, and I couldn't believe how light. I mean, it's, it's seven pounds something. It's really light. Beautiful. And I was, I was like, "What? What is this guitar?" It's like, "Oh, some guy owned it down in Texas. He was a a, a single owner guy, and it still had the three way toggle switch in it." Wow! And then, and then what dawned on me is that as much as Hendrix would have tinkered here and there with maybe wedging it in between on a couple of those different tunes and in '69, like in some of those live versions of Red House, sounds like he was kind of wedging it in between. For the most part, all those sounds that I loved as like prototypical strat sounds were just a three-way toggle switch so when i when i got that guitar and started messing with it, i almost prefer so i haven't changed that that strat still has a three-way toggle oh, so and and i for some reason man that you know the, the middle pickup all by itself there's a bunch of stuff hendrix would do with that middle pickup that i, love I always I, I love it and it's got it's got the it's got the quack but it still has got more balls yes. than like the two or the four position I'm with you. I love that metal pickup. So do you, on that guitar you got there, did you put, uh, uh, make it so the back tone knob works with the bridge pickup? Or, no, I didn't. I, I just kept it as, I haven't done anything to it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's and it sounds cool. And there's something about those, uh, you know, those 70s pickups, they got a thing. You know, I, you know, as much as they get dogged, and, and I dogged them for years. It's like every 70s Strat I would ever play, it's like, oh, my God, won't stay in tune and yada, yada, yada. And then I played this thing, and, man, I was like, I was wrong. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it. I was incorrect. Yeah, I love it when you play that guitar. Oh, I love it, man. It's a, it's, it's, it's a good one. And plus, you know, with the smaller, with the smaller frets and the old-school radius, you know, you, you got to do things differently. It's like, you're, you know, you get spoiled with, you know, a 10 inch radius and the taller frets and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. And when you got to fight it a little bit, different stuff comes out. Does that have the narrower nut spacing as well? It's, it seems to. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's always weird for me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just kind of a, you know, and I will say that that's one of the things that, um, the Wildwood thing has really been, um, instructive with is just having to adapt to whatever guitar that's next. You know what I mean? It's like, I get it. And then, and then just thinking, okay, well, and just automatically adjusting like, well, on this stuff, on this guitar, I'm going to have to do that. This, this bag of shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's, and there's just like a, a like a, 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 if I grab a guitar, it's like, I, I just go into a different mode based on what it presents me with. And that's been kind of fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. That's, that's unusual. Not a lot of guys can do that. That's I'm always impressed. Like, you know, I, I see you play your finger style and uh, the country and the jazzy stuff. And it sounds so twangy and awesome. Then you'll pick up a Paul and, and you'll sound like Billy Gibbons on his best fucking night. It's like, 
I mean, that's not easy to do. And a lot of people can do it. I always find there are guys who are Strat guys and there are guys who are like Gibson guys. And not a whole lot of guys can really do both of those for some reason, I find anyway. But you, you do it now. Well, thank you very much. Right. I, uh, I, I, you know, it was, it was interesting. I mean, do you remember back in the day where we would actually, there would, there would be like Gibson guys and Fender guys, and there was almost like a chip on your shoulder, like, well, I'm a Gibson guy. And then you would be in a situation where it's like, you switch from one to the other and you're like, now I can't play the other one. Cause I, I'm not used to that. You know, I'm not used to that sound. I distinctly remember that I switched to a 335, um, like my late, junior year in high school i saved up and i bought an es335 uh and i still had my telly but once i got used to those humbuckers i couldn't play the telly because i just i I felt so buck naked you know what i mean and just so vulnerable and there was no place to kind of hide behind those luscious humbuckers but at but at some point i could go back and forth and it didn't bother me and i have no idea when that was but um At some point, it happened. Thank God. (laughs) Well, listen, I'm sorry for talking your ear off here. I had a coffee right before we started, so I just... uh... (laughs) Been an absolute pleasure talking with you, my friend. Likewise, a pleasure, Greg. I'm honored that you asked me, man. Thank you. I'm such a huge fan of yours. Thank you so much. Well, likewise, and I look forward to the opportunity to maybe get in the jam with you at some point. Yes, don't hold your breath. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll you'll be too intimidated, but honestly, no, honestly, it would be, I would love that. I would absolutely love to get up and play with you. It'd be a blast, my friend. Well, listen, you take care of yourself, and uh, this will air at some point. Uh, we only use the audio. We do the we do the video for the hang. Oh, okay, right on. And, uh, and so the audio will go up probably in about three weeks or so on a Thursday, but... Um, uh, yeah, people have been tuning in. Thank God. Thank you out there for tuning in, by the way. Thanks, and everyone. So, and uh, so if people want to know more about your schedule and stuff, they should go to DougRappaportMusic.com, correct? Uh, well, I have a website, which is just DougRappaport.com. Okay. Um, just regular. Uh, most of my stuff is on Instagram. If you follow me on Instagram, which is just Doug underscore Rappaport, all lowercase. Um that's where I'd be making announcements and directing people to this place or that place. So it's probably the best place to follow. Sounds good. All right, my friend, we'll take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. We'll see you online. You too. Thank you, Chris. Great to see you. You too. Take it easy. All right, man. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her.